It's always a real privilege to invite you to open your copy of God's Word with me as we come to this time of the service. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I believe most of you were handed a, a note sheet as you came in to assist in tracking with our study this morning and keeping it as part of the big picture of our study through the entirety of this epistle and even Peter's life from the Gospels. Today we'll find ourselves in two verses in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, but I want to, since it's been two weeks, I want to read to you the ground we've covered in this chapter. So follow along as I read verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and and all slander, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word now and we are absolutely desperate that your spirit quiet our hearts right now from stuff we're worried about or anxious about or angry about. We pray that you would not only settle our hearts but clear our minds and even this room from distractions. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would open the eyes of our heart 
to understand the hope of our calling and to understand the grace behind your imperatives here. And Lord, so we we come to these sacred moments together giving our full attention to Scripture and putting our full dependence on your Spirit to open our eyes to understand and apply. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been saying, as we've been coming back to the study, especially chapter 2 of 1 Peter, that Peter himself is no stranger to being called names. Uh, Just think of what we saw of Peter's life as we went through the Gospel of Luke and, and even have touched base in the other three Gospels as well. Peter was called many names. He was called a stone. He was called at one time Satan. He was called or demonstrated the traits of being a denier. He was part of a group that was called to be that was called the group of little faith. And he has rightly been called the name rash because of how he would give rash statements and go through rash actions. So Peter is no stranger to, be, to being called names, but here, as we've been seeing in our last few studies in chapter 2, it's Peter that is doing the name calling. He's calling Christians names. And just by way of review in your notes, we saw number 1 in verse 2 of chapter 2 that he called Christians hungry babies. And that speaks to their relationship to God's word. And then when we came to verse 5, number 2, we saw him call Christians, then and now, living stones. And when he called us living stones in verse 5, that was speaking to us being God's people, bearing God's life, the life of our Redeemer. And then we came to verse 9 two weeks ago, and we were called a third name by Peter. We were called a chosen people. Not that we replaced the nation of Israel, Similarities do not define identity. But we were shown using the only Bible they had, which was the Old Testament, that like the nation of Israel, we too, as God's people since Pentecost, are a chosen people. And this speaks to our great privilege, as it did to the nation. But as we come to verses 11 and 12, he's going to call us a fourth name. He's going to call us temporary travelers. And in these two verses, verses 11 through 12, this will speak to our personal holiness. Our personal holiness. And I want to focus on this number four with you this morning. That we are temporary travelers. And it is important to note, as I hinted at two weeks ago, that when we come... To chapter 2, verse 11, we are coming to a point in the epistle where there's a huge pivot going on. Usually in Paul's letters, this happened more towards the center of the letter, where for the first half of Paul's letter, he gives the indicatives who we are in Christ, who our identity is in Christ, what we have in Christ, the treasure he is to us. And then Paul will turn a corner around the middle of the epistle, usually, not always. Like at Colossians 3.1 or Ephesians chapter 4. And, then, and it's when he turns that corner, it's like, so you know who you are. You know what you have. You know who he is. That must make a difference in your daily choices. That must be the battery that drives you by his grace towards personal holiness and Christlikeness. 
and that would be the second half of Paul's letters, most often a half. In Romans, it happens in chapter 12, verse 1. It's a little beyond the halfway point. That's what's going on in Peter's epistle right here. As we crest from chapter 2, verse 10, into verse 11, you can hear the hinge squeaking. Paul or Peter has been saying much about who we are in Christ, how God himself took the initiative for us to be born again. And this has something to do about it that's anchored in eternity past. Amazing love. And he's told us, therefore, since we are in Christ and since we are beloved of the Father and we've been rescued by the Son, we are called his people. We are called living stones. But he turns the corner in verse 11 for the rest of the epistle. Not that he won't give some indicatives and and some propositional statements in the second half. He will, but... The thrust here is, is, is very discerning. We are turning the corner to the second half of his letter, so to speak, and it will be application. I mean, at some point, you've got to turn that corner, right? We can't just be people of nouns and verbs and certificates and diplomas. As a matter of fact, when Peter gets to write his second epistle, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he's going to start listing out some virtues. Add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue, knowledge. And it doesn't end there. There's another comma there. And to your knowledge, self-control, applying that knowledge. And after you endure and build muscle with self-control, it says, and to your self-control, add endurance and brotherly kindness and love. See, all that comes from the knowledge of what you know to be true. At some point, brothers and sisters, we have to turn the corner so that what we know is making a difference. I remember in junior high when my mom and dad allowed me to take karate. You say, take it where? No, I mean, practice it, right? And it was, I, was, I was a junior hire, and I was in the, the kids' class, uh, which you had to be in the kids' class till you were like around 12 or something like that, and at least a green belt. Why? Because we were knuckleheads, and we messed around all the time. And they had to teach us how to stand in a straight line and how to do push-ups on the front two knuckles, not the back two knuckles, and, and just make us sit still and stop talking. Have you ever tried to do that with a middle schooler? It's impossible. Well, he got it, they got it out of us because we had to do push-ups every time we talked. And Man, he, he got us whipped into shape. And every class was an hour and a half long, every Tuesday and Thursday night. And the whole first hour of the class, I kid you not, was running was doing push-ups, was stretching, then do more push-ups, then do sit-ups, then do more push-ups. And after about a half hour of that, then we would have to stand in a straight line in a fighting stance, and, and we would throw 40 right-hand lower blocks, then 40 left-hand lower blocks, then 40 front kicks, then 40 combination. I mean, he wore us down. We weren't messing around at all. We just wanted to live. And that was just the first hour of class. But you know what? As hard as that was, man, it did us a lot of good. But we didn't want the class to end at the hour mark. After all that we were doing of the basics, we loved the last 30 minutes of class. Because you know what the last 30 minutes of class was? First hour of class was the basics and conditioning. The last half hour was called sparring. 
That's where we put a headgear on, hand gear, foot gear. We had our equipment on, and we would actually use on each other or on a black belt what we've been practicing for an hour. We loved to see the clock tick to that one hour and one minute mark because it was then onto the application. That's the feel you need to have as we crest into verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He's calling us temporary travelers. Look at these verses again. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that, for this purpose, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. He's saying we're on an assignment. You know, I would like to say the last uh, bit of time here while we were at camp in North Carolina was a vacation. It wasn't a vacation, it was work. My office never felt as safe as when I got to it this morning after driving 12 hours to get there or 11 hours. Um, that, was, that was a work. Uh, that was a job, just as it is when others will have to speak at camps and, and take teens to camps. It's, it's not a vacation. Have you noticed that in your own life that there are two types of vacations. You have a rest vacation where you are refreshed, and then you have a working vacation or a running vacation where after you get home, that's when you rest. For example, we saw this when we lived on the East Coast uh, in Virginia Beach. I mean, if we were to do a staycation there for a couple of days, I would like to just go to the ocean, to the oceanfront with a book horsefly spray, tanning lotion, and just stay there for eight hours and just read. Lori and the kids would go in the water, and I was always, it, just as it worked out, it was always shark week when we did our beach thing. I'm like, I'm not going in. You guys go out, be shark bait. Okay, I'm staying up here. True story. That's me resting, but, but there are others, other options in Virginia Beach, and that's go to Williamsburg and go to Bush Gardens, where all day long you're running, 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 standing in line, running, 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 standing in line. Bush Gardens is the eastern seaboard version of Cedar Point. You get in lines, you take, you're just running in the heat, you're, it's just, and you end the day exhausted. You folks that like to go up north, it's the same thing. When I go up north, I want to sit still and fish, but my, my wife and kids want to hike the dunes. One's refreshing, one's work. Either way, we're a tourist. But whether it's the eastern seaboard or up north in Michigan, I think you'll agree with me that tourists don't fit in permanently where they are a tourist at. You see, it's not that they are to isolate themselves from their assignment from their world or their culture that they're visiting. It's just that sometimes that world and that culture isolates them. And I'm not talking about up north of Virginia Beach right now. I'm talking about our assignment as Christians. We aren't supposed to fit in, but it's not an assignment to be weird. It's not that we isolate ourselves or we try to be weird so that we'll be rejected. As we live out our true citizenship, 
It's the world that will isolate us. They will marginalize you. And you and I are quickly reminded of what Peter's speaking about and writing about in this chapter, and it's this. As a Christian in hostile t- territory, you and I must break away from the tourist mindset. This isn't going to be easy, this assignment of being pilgrims. Two authors that capture this in a way I want you to hear this morning are John Piper and Jim Berg. Jim Berg, in his book, Created for His Glory, writes these words. Listen to this. It sounds a lot like Peter. The exclusiveness of Christianity will not be tolerated much longer in our world. Inclusivism will finally become the dominant belief in our increasingly post-Christian pluralistic culture, and the heat will be on. Listen to this. It is time, therefore, to leave our tourist mode of Christianity, living on earth as if our sole purpose is to visit all the interesting sites and collect all the souvenirs, and we must put ourselves into warfare mode, living on the alert as soldiers on assignment in occupied territory, end quote. But another author that would agree is John Piper in his fantastic little book, Don't Waste Your Life. He writes these words, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I I start to call earth home. And before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs. And using my money just the way unbelievers do. And I begin to forget the war, he writes. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not what God can do. It's a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again toward a wartime mindset. End quote. We are not tourists here. And that's what Peter is writing to his readers and to us. So I have a question for you. You want to know a little secret? You want to know what God uses more often than not to prod people like me and you out of the tourist mindset? Because we're going to get our answer here in these two verses. What does God use to prod us out of the tourist mindset? Simply this persecutors. That's what sobers us up real quickly. Taking heat and rejection and assault and insult from those who are not in the faith. That's what sobers us up, away from the tourist mindset. And our text here, these two verses, will give you five realities to protect you from the tourist mindset. Just get them down quickly in your notes. What's the first reality that will jolt you back into a wartime mindset? Here it is, the distinction. The distinction. 
Remember how Peter started this epistle in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2? He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be be yours in the fullest measure. I love that. Before he starts getting into our royalty that God has chosen to bestow on us in his, his love, He calls them and us aliens. Aliens who are scattered on assignment. He stays on that theme and he reminds them of that status in chapter 1 verse 17. Remember this? If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Here it is. Watch this. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. I mean, that just screams that this is temporary, not permanent. We are just passing through, but not disengaged, not isolating ourselves, but we are on assignment. And it's here in chapter 2, verse 11, that he gives us more details of our pilgrim assignments. And he starts out in verse 11, beloved. Sure, that's Peter saying that he loves his readers, yes. But don't start there. Beloved here is talking about how you are loved by God himself. Who has given you the new birth and placed you into this building that he's building. In that one word he's throwing them back to where he started his whole epistle. He says you are beloved by the father. And therefore by us. But now he leaves that theme. And he goes back to being pilgrims, to being aliens, to being strangers in this life. The Wycliffe Commentary puts it this way, Peter sweeps away the picture of their royalty at this point and turns the page and addresses them once more as temporary dwellers. He uses two words in verse 11. He says aliens and strangers. We've seen one of these words already in verse 1, and a lot of people have tried to distinguish these two um, titles, and there is a slight distinction that I'll give to you, but don't, don't sharpen your pencils too much. To, don't miss the picture. And he's saying, whatever way you look at a believer, they don't belong here. And they're not staying here, and they're not tethered to this culture, to this God-defying downgrade of the fall. He calls them aliens here in the New American Standard. It, it's a uh, It's just the person that would say back in that day, and we can say it this way too, the sand under my sandals is not my home country. This word aliens, paroikos, means this. It means that my allegiance, though I'm standing here right now on this ground, my allegiance is elsewhere. I remember when I was uh, ministering there in Virginia Beach, uh, one of our deacons asked me, Hey, I have, uh, he was a Virginia Tech graduate, an engineer. He says, I have, uh, I have a couple football tickets to a Virginia Tech game. You want to go with me? I'll buy dinner. So what, what do you say to an engineer who offers you dinner in a Virginia Tech game? Yes. Say, I thought you were from Michigan. I thought you were a Wolverine. Well, I, I left it when I was 18 years old, but that's still my loyalty. 
But you went to a Virginia Tech, Tech game? Yeah, I did. Why? Because he threw in dinner. And it's going to be a fun time. I think I even bought a Virginia Tech shirt just for that game and never wore it again. Gave it away to someone. You say, you're no longer Wolverine. Oh, no, I'm still a Michigan Wolverine. I mean, I don't approve the, 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 the culture on the campus of the university, but as far as a team and my affections for a sport, yeah, I'm never, I never, even at the, the, the Virginia Tech Hokie football game, I never laid down my allegiance to my Wolverines. These aliens, these strangers, these exiles, as some translate it, these leave their citizenship in their country, realizing that where they're living out their lives here is not where their citizenship is. Therefore, it's not where their rights are, their ultimate rights either. That's this idea translated alien at the beginning of verse 11. And then he uses another word, and this is the word stranger, different word. But the idea here, if there is a nuance to it, is that I'm, I'm detached from where I'll ultimately end up, and I'm just here for a brief time. So the first word's dealing with your affections and your loyalty. The second word is your duration of time in a strange place that doesn't belong to you. But again, don't strain too hard at the distinction. Get the big picture. He's saying, as much as you're beloved... What does that mean? Chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 10. As much as you are this beloved of God, never forget that you're living out this identity and your citizenship that's heavenly in a very hostile environment. There's a distinction about you. Again, it sounds like the psalm writer when he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Or as we read in Hebrews 13, 14, here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. There is a distinction that's just part of your spiritual DNA that keeps you from settling in with your affections here. Again, not to belabor the Virginia Beach context that I had for 11 years. And when I was in Virginia Beach, people would offer me their, um, uh, a little vacation at perhaps a beach house, and we'd go and go to the ocean. I'd take the ocean if it was offered. And Sometimes they'd send us into the interior of the state towards Lynchburg and see the beautiful mountains and the valleys, and, and I would take them up on that kindness. They would offer us sweet tea, and I'd drink it with the barbecue that they served. They would want us to go downtown Virginia Beach, which was kind of high-class stuff. Uh, they would encourage us to eat pizza from the local Chicago pizzeria that had started there by some, a couple that moved there from Chicago, Windy City Pizza. And we'd do that. We'd collect seashells on the beach. But my heart never longed, never ceased to long for, even before I even knew God would bring us back to Michigan, our home state, I never ceased in three decades to miss unsalted water, the birch trees up north, Verner's, Downtown Detroit, for some reason, just love it. Frankenmuth chicken, Petoskey stones, and Fago red pop. 
just to get you started. You say, well, you never, it never got out of your system. No, that, that was home. That was home. But one thing that's interesting about this distinction that keeps you from staying in a tourist mindset is that this distinction, you being on the outside, is only temporary. You understand that, right? We have, a, the fact is, your contrast is temporary. Because the holiness that God has saved you to, that's chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, will cause you to stand out only, listen, only in this life. Because what's coming, holiness won't be on the margin. It'll be central. We get to look through the window of Revelation 21, 27 into the future, and I read these words, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into the new Jerusalem, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Or I look further into chapter 22 of Revelation and I read these words. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside the city are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Brothers and sisters, the day is coming when we're not going to be on the outskirts. We're not going to be the outcasts. We, we are right now, but the day's coming when we never will be again in the presence of our Lord. That keeps you from getting too comfortable in here. That keeps you from locking into a tourist mindset, just taking all life can get you, pursuing all that our culture says we need to pursue, nodding yes to an agreement to everything that they say. Wait a minute, we don't have to do any of that. The distinction that marginalizes us is what we can call a pleasant irritation or a promising discontentment because we want to go home. But there's a second reality that will protect you from the tourist mindset. You ready for this? Number two, the struggle. The struggle. Look at verse 11 again. I urge you as aliens and strangers, look at this, to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. I mean, this is a struggle here. The fact that I see here is this. Your identity as a citizen of heaven does not exempt you, exempt you from gravity. Living here on earth, in other words. You have to live out your assignment on this earth against this grain of the fall that you've been rescued from and do so with, with a flesh that still yearns for what you've been saved from. It's that battle that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. I find then this principle, the one that in, operating in me, the one that wants to do right, that I don't do what I know I should do, and I do what I know I shouldn't do. That frustration presents a struggle that will save you from that tourist mindset that you and I struggle with. You say, well, yeah, it is a struggle. My, my primary war is with the culture, right? No. What Peter's saying here is that your primary battle, your primary struggle is not with the culture, it's with your own heart. Again, verse 11, we need to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And if we get into a rut where we are not going through every day with a high alert level, 
not just of the culture, but even more of the propensity and the gravity of our own heart, then we will, as Grudem says, be unaware to the depth of the spiritual damage and the low level of spiritual perception that comes from it. We are struggling, and the struggle is with our own flesh. Your side of the war is described with the word abstain. You are to abstain from fleshly lusts. These lusts are, are targeted at your soul, or, or this, is the, this is the whole person that's incarcerated in unredeemed humanity, as MacArthur calls it. Now, this is the part of you that uh, there's a frustration between what you know you should do and what you are equipped to do and what grace compels you to do and your flesh that just lunges towards sin still. As the hymn writer said, prone to wander. Yeah, Lord, I, I feel that. That's your side of the war. This word abstain, in the, te- the tense that you need to understand is that it's present. It's ongoing. This abstaining is ongoing, and it's in the middle voice, which means no one can do your battle except you. You don't depend on your pastor or your parents or your spouse to run your race for you or to do your battle for you. This is something that's in the present tense. It's in the middle, which means you yourself must hold yourself away from these fleshly lusts. You don't make excuses for them. You don't make provisions for them. You don't, make, you don't take any breaks from them. There's never an exception. By the way, you and I don't need Peter to tell us this this morning to know it's real, right? Because you lived with you all last week, so did I. I lived with me. And on top of that, I listened to my thoughts every day, whether I acted on them or not. Yeah, I, thank you, Peter. But I, I, I can write that in my journal already. I struggle, and so do you. And reflection gets you real honest. And let me just say that uh, all of us understand when I say that the more we practice giving in, the more proficient we give in. The more proficiently we get, we give in. The more proficient we get in our sin. And I want to add to you, I want to punctuate this the way the Apostle Paul does at several points of his epistles, that if you add, listen, if you add any kind of substance abuse to the, to the, to the mix it only makes it downgrade faster and more frequent. We know this about our flesh. Your side of the war is to abstain. It's to not, it's to be aware of what Paul says in Ephesians 4.22 of the lust of deceit. They're lying to you. Or the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.13, the the, the, uh, un- truthfulness of sin literally that's your side of the war that's your side of the struggle there's another side of the struggle too the other side of the war you see in verse 11 is that these lusts lust of the flesh lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is incessantly attacking you it says it's waging war against you we get our word strategy from this greek word And this, too, is in the present. It's constant, 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 every day, every day, every day. And 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 it's itself, it's sourced in itself, attacking you. Like a military campaign strategically and tactically lays out a plan 
that's unique to each one of us to neuter our testimony for Christ as living stones. It's attacking the holiness we are called to in chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That's what it's fighting against. You want to get out of the tourist mindset? Number one, remember this distinction. You're not supposed to fit in here. Remember the struggle. But then the third help of getting out of the tourist mindset is to remember the audience the audience look at verse 12 keep your behavior excellent among the gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify god in the day of visitation what do you mean the audience i mean this He's, what he's saying to his readers. He's using the word Gentile. It doesn't mean the Jews aren't in on this as well. He's just, that's the way he's using that is to his Jewish and Gentile readers. He's saying those who are not yet part of this living building that you are as Jews, as saved Jews and Gentiles. In other words, the unsaved. It's not just the Gentiles that we're persecuting. He's saying the unbelievers study you. That's a fact you can take to the bank. You already know that too. But unbelievers study you. So, in God's kindness, we've got a couple decades of pastoring under our belt. And uh, I always had to listen to people talk about a pastor and his kids living in a glass house. There's truth. That's why pastors, and I would even add deacons, in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, need to be examples to the rest of the congregation. And in a sense, I accept the glass house thing. It's a little hard to work with your children through that, and especially as they are teens, and, 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 and grace is a big help to that. But I sure like what the commentator Kistemacher says at this point on this verse. He says, it's not just pastors. Every Christian lives in a glass house. Unbelievers are studying you. And what are they doing while they study you? Again, look at verse 12. It says at the end, they observe you. They are observing you as, a, this is the word, as a spectator. And over a period of time. I, we just got a thing in the mail yes, uh, this past week, and I read it last night, that from the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, I like to go to stuff like that from time to time, and, and uh, about concerts coming up, and and different uh, classical things or, or pop things that are coming that are fun to attend. But I only go as a spectator, and, and it's only for a limited, limited amount of time. And that's the idea here with observing. The unbeliever studies you while they have the opportunity, however long that is. And there's an important reminder here to his readers and ours that persecutors have the best seats in your life. Because they are focused on you as they test you and as they hurt you. I believe right here in these two verses, Peter's mind is going back to a sermon he has heard so many times from the Lord during his, during his earthly ministry. The Sermon on the Mount. If you stand out as a merciful person, as a pure person, as a, as a person who's aware of their sin, as a person who's a peacemaker, 
you stand out, you will get hit. The Puritan Henry Smith said, God, God proves us through, our, through trials. Satan proves us through temptations. The world proves us through persecutions. And he's right. There's a caution here. You are never, never not being scrutinized by unbelievers unless you have strained to convert to their culture. Because our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 13, if the salt becomes tasteless, how can you make it salty again? If you've jumped into the life and the culture of your co-workers or unsaved family and friends, and they look at you and, and you're just like us, except you go to church. We, have no, we spend 90 minutes different every week from each other. You value what we value. You, you party like we party. You, you, you talk like we talk. You, you, you hold the same positions we do. It's like you've got to ask at the very least, the, salties, the salt's gotten unsalty. And at, in the worst case scenario, maybe you were never regenerated. I, I don't know. God knows the heart. The audience is studying you, the unsaved. And sometimes it brings hits to you, as it will to these readers. But it always brings hate. And this is the fourth reality that will free you of the tourist mindset. The accusations. The accusations. Now I want to emphasize a few words in verse 12 again. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they, here's the first word, slander you as evildoers, they may because of your deeds as they observe them glorify God. I want you to land on that word slander and calling you an evildoer. Those are accusations. This word slander just means what it, mean, what it says. It's to speak evil against you, right or wrong, true or false. Wrong things are being attributed to you. And they're saying what you do, what you stand for as a disciple of Jesus Christ is evil. You say, they really say that? Well, they say it on the news every night. I want to say this very graciously. We pray, as we did this morning, we pray for our governor, Governor Whitmer, every day. We should be praying for her every day. And corporately, when we come together every week, as well as our president. We should pray for our Attorney General. We should pray for our Secretary of State. I don't care who's in the office. But sometimes someone's in that office that will look at you and say, because you believe in this book, when you say that there are only two genders, that's evil. When you say that marriage can't be anything other than one man to one woman, that's evil. They'll say that to us. That's unloving. That's an accusation. Because of who we are and what we embrace, we are called evil. And you know, even back in Peter's day, you know what they were saying about Christians? They accused them of immorality because they would kiss each other with, a, with an affectionate greeting. They were accused of cannibalism because they talked about eating someone's flesh and drinking someone's blood. They were, they were slandered as being disloyal to Caesar because there was another king. 
They were slandered that they were disrupting the slave system because this Jesus of Nazareth made all men free. They were slandered as breaking up homes because our Lord said sometimes in a home the sword comes down and some believe and some don't. They were, they were called, in our term, morons, ascetics, disloyal, and irreligious. As a matter of fact, one at the side of, of the emperor referred to Christians with these words, quote, they are a class of people animated by a novel and dangerous superstition, end quote. People looked at those who were, were living stones with Christ and said they are evil. What they hold, what they believe is evil. Unbelievers call evil what you and I call good. Hear Jim Berg again in his book, Change into His Image. This is the real world. And only a believer walking in fellowship with his creator and redeemer can understand it. Everyone else in the world is experiencing a break with reality. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, the unsaved man, the natural man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit. Or Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19, just, just as kind of potent when it says it in one sentence, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They don't even know over what they stumble. We have the clarity, though, from our Lord and from his word. But we're called evil because of that. Yeah, these accusations will keep you from a tourist mindset. But there's one more reality that Peter gives to us that will rescue us from the tourist mindset. Number five, the end. The end. Because all this is working towards an amazing crescendo that might have even surprised Peter's readers and you this morning. The end. Look at verse 12. Right in the middle of the verse. They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, and look at this phrase, glorify God in the day of visitation. What are some words we need to pay attention to here in verse 12? Well, earlier in verse 12, it says keep your behavior. See this word excellent in the English? That same Greek word is going to show up again, a form of this word in this verse, um, where it says because of your good deeds. The word good and the word excellent are related. They're coming from the same word. And it's more than just um, something that's right. It's, it's beyond that, because remember, this is a spectator sport in verse 12. He uses a word twice, kalas, which means something beautiful. The way you're living, especially in a hostile environment where you don't belong, and because of the battle you're doing privately and against your own flesh, what comes out in your public life is something beautiful. You could translate it honorable. Uh, some would even say it's so distinguished that it calls attention to it and you can't escape it. That's what's behind this excellent and good that you see in this verse. They're studying it and no matter what they say, no matter how far you uh, don't look like them and don't sound like them and don't pursue what they're pursuing, there's still a sweetness and a gravity to you that they can't deny. And the closer the look, they look, the more real it is. 
And what does it do? It says it leads down the road to them glorifying God in a day of visitation. See, what in the world is that? Hold your finger here. I'm going to take you to one passage before we're finished. I want you to look at Luke with me. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Because Luke, you're going to see Luke recording this same concept three times. Now, the day of visitation, if you want to just pan back from the Old and New Testament, in the Old, let me just talk about the Old Testament, this concept of the Lord visiting, of Yahweh visiting, can be to visit in judgment, or it can be to visit with mercy. Those are your two choices when you see this concept in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and other passages. But in the New Testament, more often than not, it's going to refer to the mercy one. Not every time. But I want you to see that this interpretation has some significant momentum to it, especially when we go back to 1 Peter and we see that there's no, um, there, there, there's no definite article in front of day of visitation. It's not the day of visitation, like the judgment, I don't believe. But I want you to see something in Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. This is Zechariah giving his prophecy after he can speak. Verse 40, 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Who's he talking about? His son John that'll be born? No, he's talking about Messiah, the one his son will, um, will, will foretell. He'll talk about his own son down in verse 76. He's talking about Messiah here as God visiting in mercy and rescue. Now keep that in mind and look at, at Luke chapter 7, verse 16. Luke chapter 7. I want you to see this. You have Jesus healing centurion's servant, and I just want you to pick up on the wording here and answer the question, is this mercy or judgment? It says, uh, when we get to verse 11, um, there was a large crowd coming out of the city, and, and, uh, and, and Jesus and his crowd was coming in, and there was a dead son there, okay? And, the, and Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. And what's the response when the dead lives again? Verse 16, fear gripped them, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among his people. And look at the next phrase. And God has visited his people. Is that mercy or judgment? It's, it's mercy. But I want you to look at Luke 19 for one more. Then we'll finish up. Luke 19. We're at the triumphant entrance or as some would say, the tragic entrance into Jerusalem, the week of his crucifixion. Look at verse 41. When he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Is that judgment or mercy? Before we even get to the phrase. His heart for the city that was rejecting him overcame him. That's mercy. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. You say, that's judgment. But what's the point of what he's saying here? 
they're going to have the judgment because they didn't see the mercy. Look at the last phrase. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In other words, as your king's coming through the gate right now, you reject him. So as we come back to 1 Peter, I agree with Schreiner and other fantastic commentators that this is most likely talking about, listen, are you ready for this? The day when the people who persecute you, listen, get saved. Mercy comes to them, and some of them will, will accept it as God works in their heart. God will visit them in a saving manner, in mercy. There's no definite article here that is talking about a judgment. As a matter of fact, Peter's going to give an example of this to wives who are married to unsaved husbands in, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. They may be won by your behavior. So the fact here is this, you win when your enemies say to God someday, they were real because of you and their life, Lord. And some of those people will be saying it because they too are in glory with you. Again, Peter's mind continues to go to the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, where Jesus said, let your light shine before men. Listen, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. If they come to Christ because of your perseverance, that's a win, right? Even if they don't come to Christ someday because of your perseverance, they will admit for all eternity that you were real and that God was working through you. Think what Paul said, we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. I close with this story that John MacArthur shared with his church family, as best I can tell, back in, in uh, 1989. He shared this with his congregation at Grace Community Church. He came across a book called The Song of Deliverance, written by a husband and a wife, Herb and Ruth Klingen. And he writes, MacArthur writes as he reports on this book, During World War II, missionaries Herb and Ruth Klingen and their young son spent three years in a Japanese prison camp in the Philippines. In his diary, Herb recorded that their captors murdered, tortured, and starved to death many of their fellow prisoners. The camp commandant, Konishi, was hated and feared more than the others. Herb writes, quote, Konishi found an inventive way to abuse us even more. He increased the food ration, but gave us pale, which is unhusked rice. I hope I said that right. Eating the rice with its razor-sharp outer shell would cause intestinal bleeding that would kill us in hours. We had no tools to remove the husk and doing the job manually by pounding the grain or rolling it with a heavy stick that consumed more calories than the rice would supply. It was a death sentence for all, end quote. MacArthur continues, before death could claim their lives, however, General Douglas MacArthur and his forces liberated them from captivity. That very day, Konishi had planned to gun down all the remaining visitors or prisoners. 
Years later, Herb and Ruth, and now I'm quoting them again from their book, learned that Konishi had been found working as a groundskeeper at a Manila golf course. He was put on trial for his war crimes and hanged. But before his execution, he professed conversion to Christianity, saying, this is Konishi, that he had been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries he had persecuted, end quote. And MacArthur concludes, when God graciously visited Konishi with salvation, that one-time torturer remembered the godly behavior of missionaries he once persecuted, and their example became the unspoken means of Konishi's conversion. Wow. Hmm. It gives fresh meaning to what Pastor Michael preached to us a few weeks ago from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Remember this? Verses 14 through 16. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Wow. That's it. So, what do you say? Are you stuck in a tourist mindset? Just two verses this morning. But five things that will shake you loose again. And you might have to look at them again tomorrow. And then on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday. Remember the distinction. Remember the struggle against your own flesh. Remember the audience, remember the accusations, and remember the end. You see, tourists aren't supposed to fit in. This is a war, not a vacation. But don't forget one thing. Our persecutors ultimately don't come to get us. No, we have come to get them with the gospel and with our lives. And then after all this is over, then we'll go home. Father, thank you for the promises of the gospel. Thank you for what you've spoken to believers in all generations and all cultures of opposition to the gospel. Not just these readers, but us today in 2023 here in the West. Forgive us for the tourist mindset. Shake us loose and never let us go back to that. And if we even have to ask forgiveness of unbelievers in our home or at work or on our campus for living like them and express a genuine affection that we have been an obstacle for them to see the power of Christ in our lives, may we be humble enough to do that. And I pray for anyone under the sound of my voice who has been resisting coming to Christ. They've been critical, they've been mean. They've been slanderous, but they can't deny the steadfastness and the genuineness of those that call on your name. Lord, would you give those persecutors faith and repentance? May today be your day of visitation, mercy to them, and they too can join us in our citizenship in heaven. Would you do that, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.